Hello and welcome to the Activist Podcast, brought to you by Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals. I'm your host, Gareth Skur, and I'll also be joined by my wonderful co-host and wife, Jackie Norman. In this episode, we have New Zealand's leading freshwater ecologist, Dr. Mike Joy. In the interview, Mike shares with us the true nature of the dairy industry, its impact on the land, the people, and most importantly, the animals. We hope you learn as much as we did from this episode, and be sure to check us out on social media pages at VeganFTA on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, where you can also find this series in video format. Mike Joy, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us here today. Uh, to many of us here in New Zealand, um, you're widely recognized as one of our prominent voices for the environment. Uh, for the benefit of our viewers from all around the world, however, could you just uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a senior researcher at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University. Uh, previous to that, I was a, a lecturer in, in freshwater ecology and environmental science at Massey University and did that for about 20 years. Um, and but I was a I was a late starter to academia. I mean, I didn't even I first went to university at the at the age of thirty three. So um, I kind of uh, I had a whole other life of dairy farming and worked on a outback sheep station and built boats and sold and sailed the Pacific and did all, all manner of jobs um, before I got into this this world. So um, yeah, pretty kind of diverse background uh, unlike a lot of academics that I that I work with who seem to go straight from school to uni and and stay there forever kind of thing so I think that that's maybe explains why I'm a, a bit different from the rest of them. Oh we've uh, definitely been making up for lost time when it comes <laughs> to uh, having an impact on, on what you're doing now um, as Gareth mentioned you know you're, you're very well known in, in New Zealand for raising your, your voice and speaking the truth about some of our main environmental issues in this country and, you know, we're always being marketed as this clean, green haven of a nation. Um, could you tell us a little bit how this sort of false propaganda got you to uh, not only enrolling university, but sort of become the self-described angry advocate that you are today? Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't realise this till later on, but I kind of had been, I had this really deep belief, having been brought up as a Kiwi, that that we lived, that we were so, you know, lucky to live in this clean, green country. And it's certainly, you know, as a, when I was a kid, it was a lot, you know, more accurate than what it is now. I mean, we've done an incredible amount of damage in the last, you know, 50, 60 years. And so, um, yeah, and, and so it's that anger, it's that feeling that um, the more, I mean, I was, I was never an angry uh, speaking up type person. I would, was a very shy retiring person until I started studying this and um, studying freshwater particularly and, and native fish was what I was working on for a start. And, and um, yeah, the anger came from the realization is just how fast we were trashing everything that we have, you know, how unique our fauna is and, and, and to think that we are just as bad or probably worse than many other developed countries in the world when it comes to destroying um, our freshwaters, our atmosphere. Uh, our oceans, um, you know, you name it, we, we, we're shocking. We have shocking statistics for waste, um, you know, the amount of fertilizer used, all those kind of things. We're in the bottom 20 percentile. We're, you know, we're sort of, we, of 170, 80 countries in the world that you can get data from, we're right there with the very worst in the world on, on most of the things, water quality, fertilizer use, marine captures, um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions per capita, all of that kind of stuff. We are shockers. Yeah. yeah. I always find it absolutely bizarre um, that this country as well, it, it likes to be known for being a front runner, you know, <laughs> like we, we, we have the best rugby team. We have the best mm. of this, the best of that. And um, like, especially in recent times, you know, with the pandemic, everyone's praising New Zealand. Oh, what a wonderful thing. You're putting the right foot forward. But for me personally, I kind of feel we should also be putting ourselves up there and sort of saying, you know, look how many things we are doing terribly, how many things we're doing really wrong. Mm. And especially along, uh, like you just mentioned before, um, we are, what, number two in the most polluted, polluted lakes and rivers, is it? Just behind China. And um, also we have the number one um, statistics for colorectal cancer in the world. 
so we're really we're really outdoing ourselves as a tiny nation of uh, getting ourselves up up the top of those uh, billboards. Yeah. But um, yeah. yeah, can you tell us? Oh, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say we yeah we like to celebrate the good stuff, and we 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 are very good at um, you know just just covering up the the bad stuff and not talking about it, and uh, it's you know I mean that's a big part of my fight and struggle and anger is um, the the government central and local government organisations that supposedly well, are supposed to be protecting fresh water and, and environment in New Zealand and how complicit they are in um, not doing that and in fact and, and worse and in, in covering it up. Absolutely yeah it was uh, shocking I saw you something that you posted the other day like uh, Gareth was saying I think it was the, the 10 most polluted lakes in the world um, and New Zealand had four of those in that list. I could not believe it. I mean, that's that's a real eye opener. Oh, that was that was the rivers. That was nitrate loadings in rivers in the world. Yeah, and and I mean that's a selection, and, and we are amongst the worst. We've you know we we've we've taken a very natural farming system and turned it into an industrial system, um, and it's it kind of gets into a really really tricky space because people. Um, I mean, we can talk about this in detail if you want to, but people imagine that because and, and we market our, our dairy products and a lot of our food as being wonderful because, um, you know, it's it's grass-based, the cows are outside, as if that's a really, really good thing when uh, it's better than a feedlot. But the problem with having that intensity of cows outside, and when I say that intensity, it's the intensity, the stocking rate that's way higher than natural because we pour on these artificial fertilisers. Um, and then, and then the the fertilisers, the nitrogen especially, just goes straight through them, and very little goes away with the product. A little bit goes into the meat, a little bit goes into the milk, but but the vast majority of it goes out into the environment, where it causes all sorts of harm and and nitrous oxide uh, to the atmosphere, which is 300 times more of a greenhouse gas than carbon is, carbon dioxide is, and and huge problems with the water that relates back to the cancers and all the other human health issues as well as ecosystem health ones. So, yeah, this is, this is kind of um, uh, yeah, a, a marketed by the companies as a positive thing, but but not in reality, not a positive thing at all. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, what was the word for a constructive accounting comes up quite a bit with yeah. uh, a lot yeah. of these things. And, yeah. Um, yeah. A recent uh, talk you were doing as well, uh, you're saying about how uh, with the overstocking, you know, there's what about 5 million of us here in New Zealand, human wise, but mm. uh, with the cattle, they're doing the equivalent of was 150 million, um, 140, 140 yeah. million well, that's, worth of waste. <laughs> that's, that's a minimum. So yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at all the things that, you know, from, from the amount of waste or how much nitrogen's in it or how much how much E. coli pathogens in it, all that kind of things. It's between 14 and 44 human equivalents per large cattle beast. Um, and so, yeah, there's about 10 million cows, uh, cattle in this country, six and a half million dairy cows and the, and the rest of beef. Um, and so, yeah, it's just simple, 10 times uh, 14 is a 140 million minimum human equivalents and in, in those animals and and at least in our case you know a lot of that waste is captured and yeah you know supposedly treated actually we don't do very well at treating it but at least we have a go at it whereas what what's happening out in the paddock is that the the urine full of nitrate is just going straight through and into soils and then into waterways where and then into oceans and so yeah it's a it's 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 trying to understand that um the difference with with New Zealand, you know, it was the same thing over over the lockdown that there was this, you know, lots of stats coming from overseas how you know skies were clearing over China and and really intensively humanized parts of the world, and so you know that it was great for the environment. But here in New Zealand, nothing changed really. I mean, people went inside; that didn't make any difference to to the human. You know, there would have been a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from transport and that kind of thing, but. The farming system just chugged along exactly as it was before, and no reduction at all in waste uh, production and, and harm coming from that intensive agriculture. 
Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's all about you know we were saying yesterday when uh, doing research and things like that that um, you know similarity between advocating for change for the animals and advocating for change for the environment is that we're so often fighting against issues which aren't visible to the general public. Um, yeah. You know, just as we can't see the atrocities that are inflicted on livestock on a daily basis, we also can't see the damage that's happening to our waterways every day mm. as a result of animal agriculture. Mm. So um, could you explain for our viewers the effect of nitrogen on our waterways and subsequently our drinking water? Because I was really shocked to find out, you know, about the state of our drinking water. Yeah, well, I mean, it's all, that's the trouble. I get frustrated with this, um, you know, there's a big kind of... Uh, commission going on in New Zealand. They're talking about the three waters. Um, so we have uh, storm water, um, we have um, wastewater, you know, that comes out of water treatment plants, and we have drinking water. And and they sort of they think that they can kind of be. This all comes out of the big poisoning in Havelock North, where five thousand people got seriously ill from um, contaminated drinking water. And so they did this big inquiry, and this is what comes out of it. But it's typical of a government response in that um, they narrow down on these three waters and forget the the big water or the fourth water or whatever the source water and you know as if as if you know the only waters that count are these ones that we uh, manipulate at one end and not thinking about how we've polluted the water which is the water that supplies the groundwater that supplies the drinking water for much of New Zealand um, and. That you know, so so you get this kind of crazy situation. But anyway, so nitrate, the, what nitrate does, and the bulk of it coming from, which you know I already touched on before, from nitrogen fertilizer that comes from fossil fuels. This is a crucial part of the whole story to understand that up until 1980 in New Zealand, we didn't have any nitrogen fertilizer. It it was part of a a whole process where we took gas off na natural gas. We were forced to take it. We had a take or pay scheme where, a, where a, a, an overseas company came in, said, yep, we'll find gas and oil in your country and we'll supply it to you, but we have to make a profit. We have to sell X amount. So this was this take or pay scheme. You, you take it, you're going to pay for it anyway. So the government had to run around and fight, come up with ways of using this gas because they were being forced to use it at this really high rate. So they came up with one of the uses was the... Uh, Carpuni plant that turned it into urea fertilizer or nitrogen fertilizer. So then they had a product that they had to push on farmers in New Zealand and they very successfully did. Now only one third of it comes from New Zealand gas and the rest comes from Middle East. And this massive amount of nitrogen uh, fertilizer that grows grass, most of it, as I said, leaves the farm. It doesn't stay on the farm. It doesn't go to the product. It doesn't go to the animal. It goes out and through the urine and into groundwater, um, rivers, streams, drinking water. And and I mean, I, I think the classic case is is, is Canterbury, um, where my, where all of the drinking water comes from that groundwater, and it's very shallow, gravelly soils, and you get a very very quick um, movement from what happens on the land, sped up by by irrigation, I might add, um, pumping it through the system. So what, what nitrate does in the ecosystem is it does exactly what it did on the paddock. You put it on the paddock to grow grass, it ends up in water and it grows plants. So whether it's starting in the rivers, it grows algae, which covers the bed of the, of the waterway. Um, it ends up in lakes and it grows weed and it grows algae in lakes and offshore it grows big algal blooms as well and we have dead zones and in all of those cases the harm, initial harm or one of the, the most common harms is the effect on dissolved oxygen. So when, when you have plants, everyone I think knows from school about photosynthesis and that process of, of uh, taking in carbon dioxide and, and um, respiring and giving out oxygen and so what happens that that happens diurnally so at night it goes in reverse and it's using up the oxygen so you get really depleted oxygen levels during the night and early morning and really excessive oxygen levels during the day in a healthy system with a healthy amount of nutrient which is just a natural amount then the oxygen levels are constant and everything's fine it's just when you add all this nutrient to the system, then it starts to fluctuate 
oxygen levels start to fluctuate and you get deficits where nothing can survive it. Well, I mean, I think the best way for people to understand is if they've seen a goldfish in a little bowl at home and you see goldfish gulping air off the surface, that's because there's not enough oxygen in the water. So some of the fish species, especially the ones like goldfish that are evolved to low oxygen conditions, can can take some from the surface and, and survive, but m most of our native fish can't do that. And so they die and, and same with the invertebrates. So that's that's the ecosystem level effect and it and it just gets exacerbated through the lakes and, and oceans and you have all the life dying off in these things called dead zones. What happens, well, but when it comes to um, human uh, health, there are a bunch of um, illnesses associated with with uh, high nitrogen or nitrate levels in drinking water. Um, one of the ones that's been studied quite a bit, uh, particularly recently, is colorectal cancer. So, uh, I mean, people, and I, I guess that a lot of your um, listeners will will be aware of nitrite effects on the body. So those processed meats and things like that, and the nitrite relationship with cancers. Um, you know, with things like salamis and, and processed and bacon and that kind of thing. But what happens with nitrate in drinking water is, is the body converts it to nitrite and the effects are very, very similar. So there's some big studies from, from Denmark, from USA, and I mean studies involving many, many millions of people showing really clear relationships between increasing nitrate levels in drinking water and colorectal cancer. And when we look at New Zealand, where we have the highest rates in the world. So it's the uh, colorectal cancer is the number one, the, sorry, the number two killer globally of as far as cancers. You rank the cancers and it's number two. I'm not sure what's number one, I, I forget. But um, then in New Zealand, we have the highest rates in New Zealand. And when you look at where the highest rates are in New Zealand, there's a very high correlation with high nitrate and drinking water and the highest rates within New Zealand. Um, and there's a bunch more work being done on that. I, there's a couple of papers that are in uh, the process of being published at the moment, so I'll be able to be more specific about those numbers. But I can just generalise at the moment that um, that and, and that that's the that's the kind of issue. And it's very plain uh, when you when you look at the nitrate levels in groundwater in intensively farmed areas, it's high and increasing, and it, it doesn't always, you know, Canterbury is the example where it happens really, really fast. Um, in other parts of the country, it can take decades from the time the nitrate is, starts to move through the soil until it ends up in the waterways. So sort of a matter of a few days or years in Canterbury and decades in other part of the country, parts of the country. So, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm just mentioning that because, um, you know, just to, sh to kind of, remind people that you can kind of shut off the supply but you, you're not going to see the impacts drop off straight away this is a this is a, a legacy effect that's going to keep on coming for a while yeah oh, wow. my um, my mum she's actually a bowel cancer survivor and she's living in the heart of rural Waikato surrounded by oh. farmland so when I heard all this from you I yeah. was like well that makes total sense can you please stop drinking so much water mum <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I mean now we get into this other issue that really gets me angry is that so you know I I probably I I, I can't be sure but I mean I, you, you'd be pretty you could guess quite easily that at Fonterra and Dairy New Zealand, they might have a, a picture of me on the dartboard. <laughs> um, but at, but at Coca-Cola, I imagine that I'm their number one best seller because they would love me because as I point out the harm that people can, you know, the problems, potential harm of drinking water that's supplied to New Zealanders, then the immediate reaction is if you're worried about it at all is to go and buy bottled water. And, and there's a whole lot of issues with bottled water, the plastic bottles that it's put in. But the problem, that, the thing that makes me really angry about that is that we have these transnational com companies like Coca-Cola who for no cost, for zero cost, get to take the best water. I mean, most of the, as far as I know, most of their drinking water comes from Pataruru. They've got a bore in Pataruru that's very, very deep uh, where the water hasn't been contaminated yet. So they get that for nothing and then they get to sell it to us and put it in plastic bottles and sell it to us at, at a, an incredible profit. Um, and the reason they get it for nothing is because all of the governments up, up until now and including this 
current one, are too scared to take on the issue of water ownership. So it's much easier and safer for a government to just go, oh, nobody owns water, the famous you know, John Key lines, nobody owns water in New Zealand. Now, the reason they say that is because they haven't and won't face up to the treaty uh, issues around the ownership of water in New Zealand. And so it's a complete cop out from them. So when they say nobody owns water in New Zealand, you just have to, and I, and I suggest that anybody listening who wants to do this, have a look at, uh, go online and look for Hydro Trader. I think it's just hydrotrader.com or something, but Hydro Trader New Zealand. And you will see, it's a bit like a, a, a stock market type thing where water uh, takes in Canterbury are traded online. And there are millions of dollars worth of water being being traded on this website. This is rights to water where people can make huge amounts of money, despite the fact that supposedly nobody owns water, then then it's traded for a huge amount of money. And and those, you know, it's it's not like anybody was asked, Māori or otherwise, if it's okay if those people get given this huge resource. It's just taken. It's just taken as a right because they own the land that, that you can put the ball down on that land, even though the catchment area for that groundwater that you're taking might be hundreds of kilometres away from you. You have the right to it. And so this this is a whole, you know, the other side of the story that, like, say, for your mum, if you suggest to her, don't don't drink that tap water, she goes and buys it from Coca-Cola, you know, which is, which is just, uh, you know... It, it's so depressing and so sad that we are so gullible and stupid that we would, that we, you know, that's what happens in this country. Exactly. Yeah. Because when we first heard about your work, we were down in Southland ourselves and uh, we we're watching the webinar called The Future of Food, which is absolutely brilliant. And we'll have to link it in the description of this video. But yeah, of course, we, we did that exact thing. We went and bought, you know, some of those big uh, gallon mm. uh, jugs of water and stuff. And the local farmer comes around and he's like, isn't our water good enough for you? And like, we were like, well, no, I, I don't want cancer. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, but that lasted for a while. I don't know, I don't know maybe a month or so we did that, you know, uh, get the big containers. But yeah, it's just, I guess it's the, is there a best of a bad bunch, you know? Is it just a case of, you know, if we eliminate, let's say, the meat products, which are given this nitrite um, to us, you know, is that sort of the best that we can do is just by eliminating all other sources and just basically trying to work on, the system on slowly get rid of that legacy. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've always been a fan of just catching your own water. Um, it falls out of the sky, it's pouring down here at the moment. Um, you could catch quite easily a huge amount of water that's running at the moment. Um, you know, and I've, I've lived most of my life in houses that did catch their own roof water, and so I'm a bit of a fan of it. But yeah, I mean, so so there is that option. But yeah, I mean, I, I just, just I, I'm pulled to think that uh, and, and you know the government just recently announced they're going to put a huge amount more money into cleaning up uh, water. You know the this, the kind of idiocy of um, cleaning up something afterwards. You know, so instead of you know it's just the classic you know ambulance. The thing that makes me crazy about mad about what lots of what's happening in New Zealand. We we spend huge amounts of money on ambulances for the bottom of the cliff and and what won't it won't touch the source of the the problem we just had that the classic thing that i'm still so angry about with with minister parker our, our environment minister uh exempting a couple of uh key uh vegetable growing areas in new zealand from having that um the the freshwater protections the very very weak freshwater protections anyway but 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 for example, um, in the Horafenua, um, one of the most polluted lakes in New Zealand and the world is Lake Horafenua. Um, but but the government announced that the the you know one of the major inputs to that lake is is the intensive horticulture that happens uh, in the catchment of the lake, um, and it's been exempted from. And and the minister said, and he was quoted on the radio as saying that, um, you know that he had uh, advice. That there would be a reduction if they had if they applied those limits to protect nitrate levels in fresh waters around that lake, around that uh, region for the lake, then uh, it would reduce vegetable production there. And Pukekohe was the other uh, place they talked about, the other big vegetable area would reduce production by forty percent. Therefore, those two areas were going to be exempt. Um, <laughs> and and because 
and he linked it to diet. He said because um, you know that you know vegetables are very important in New Zealand's diet, New Zealanders' diets, and so we we wouldn't want this to to happen. And, you know, so to to invoke the diet thing when you're going you're you're allowing the pollution of waterways that would harm people's uh, health potentially, and then use the health you know card to try and justify not protecting fresh waters. Whoops. Sorry. Um, yeah, as an excuse not to protect fresh waters is is like just a, such a creepy double standard that um, that makes me really mad because, and they and they put up some figure. Um, I mean, the whole the whole basis of it is is completely fake. Um, and I actually saw the advice that the minister was given, and it came from, and, and it appalls me to think that this happens in this country. It was um, from Ministry of Primary Industries, completely unreferenced some unnamed staff member in the Ministry of Primary Industries giving advice to the Minister for the Environment on this issue, just basically made up numbers, you know, no justification whatsoever. And that's where the 40% story came from. So they're kind of saying that it's okay. I mean, you, you guys probably know much better than me about the problems uh, with intensively produced vegetables, you know, they just don't have the goodness that that, you know, when you pump in you know, high levels of fertilizer and you farm in a monoculture like that. Um, and, and the other thing that I know that they do is just before, maybe within days of harvest, they'll put on an extra big dose of nitrate to, to of nitrogen fertilizer to give this kind of bloom or flush, you know, like to broccoli and, and plants like that. So that they'll look good in the supermarket, and and you know, so it's, you know, the whole process is stupidly industrial, but that's like the final, um, you know, kind of stupidity just to make it look at like a flush of nice coloured green, and most of it washes off and and ends up in the lakes and rivers and that kind of thing. So, justifying producing vegetables as if that overrides everything even though the quality of the vegetables is debatable um you know uh, and and you're going to harm the environment in that process is just such flawed logic you know it's absolutely crazy it's insane, isn't it? i kind of like to imagine it in my head you know they're being handed like a, a crisp packet with the information written on you know like here's your official yeah. document <laughs> yeah oh it, it's it's yeah i mean i hate that i hate that idea that you know there's that that's the advice that the government's getting and it's just public servants uh, you know thinking they know what the minister wants to hear kind of thing and, and passing it on is a, that's a big problem with our with our system so um yeah but i mean if you no matter how you look at that because there's so many problems with it so then all the vegetable producers who don't uh, happen to be in horafenawa uh, or pukekohe don't get that they have to comply with the freshwater protection and so you're going to protect just a certain number of vegetable growers because they happen to be the biggest and the noisiest and the best lobbyists, I guess. Um, and then if you put a price on it, and, and which is what the dairy industry often does when they say, well, if you make us comply with these freshwater conditions, then it's going to cost X amount of dollars. Um, therefore, you know, the, you have to look at that and say, okay, if it's going to cost, um, in the case of um, protecting lake um, Lake Ellesmere in, in Canterbury, I've got the figures for that where the Ministry for the Environment did a, a got a report done on the economics of the cutting nitrogen use or, or intensity back to the level that would be required to protect that lake. And it's just a, you know, not, not, not that many farms, it's only one lake. Um, it, it would cost $300 million in lost profit for those dairy farms, right? So or there was another alternative of buying land and creating a huge wetland to take up those nutrients before they got into the lake and that was gonna cost $390 million. So the council supported by Ministry for the Environment uh, said, no, okay, uh, we can't obviously can't afford to protect Lake Ellesmere because it's gonna cost $300 million. But surely if it's gonna cost $300 million to protect the lake, then that's per year. Uh, then we are subsidising, we, the rest of New Zealand or that lake or the people that use that lake or however you want to look at it, are subsidising that industry to the tune of $300 million a year 
by allowing them to keep polluting that lake. I mean, I don't know if they realise it when they say it, but we have to turn that back on them. When they say, oh, we can't afford to have these freshwater protections because it'll cost $300 million. Well, tough, because otherwise we're just leaving it for our kids to have to pay. Well, they, they, can't, well, they don't pay in cash. They pay in disease and sickness and in unhealthy rivers and all of that kind of thing. So... Um, I think, you know, we really have to jump on that kind of stuff when it happens. Oh, it's, it's insanity. I mean, something that we were really gobsmacked <laughs> and, and I was actually yeah, really angry to, to hear recently is that um, our government and taxpayers pay something like $40 million for farmers not to pollute two of our, our lakes alone, just uh, Lake Rotorua and, and Taupo. It's bizarre any of us should even have to pay for this, but um, yet another thing that even comes even more absurd as well is how the government are also dealing with the pollution that's coming through by dumping aluminium into the lake to stop the algae from growing that you spoke about. Yeah. Could you enlighten us to why the hell they do this and if it even has a chance of keeping the water clean? Okay, so well, you, the 40 million is just for Lake Rotorua. Lake Taupo has already had 90 million. So... It, it works out to $400 for every kilogram of nitrogen that's leached off a farm per year. So, so you go, you know, so the 40 million, that's because you have to get 100 tonnes less nitrogen into Lake Rotorua to protect it is the calculation, right? So the 100 tonnes works out at $40 million, works out to $400 for every kilogram. So that's, you know, for the average farm, that's probably $6 million or something like that, you know, that the farmer will be paid to not have those cows on that farm. And, you know, you can say what you like about that, but at least it is working in that when those cows are gone, they're not allowed to put them back again. And so there is a chance that that lake will come right. The fact, you know, that it's, that we're, taxpayers' money paying for it. And I mean, it's a tricky area. Some of the farmers could, justifiably claim that they they went into this blind, they paid good money for these cows in this land and, and then get told afterwards they can't do it. So therefore we should recompense them. That's a whole that's a whole other argument. But to put that kind of into um, some kind of you know uh, scale, if you look at Canterbury and just going by the figures coming from the industry themselves on how much nitrogen is lost from the Canterbury region and from intensive dairy farming then you would have to pay $12 billion to, to, at, yeah, at that same rate. If we want to protect those Canterbury lakes and rivers the same way that we protect Lake Rotorua, then there's $12 billion. Well, the whole dairy industry is probably supposed to be worth just over that per year for the whole country. And yet, so that shows how much we subsidize that stupid industry in this country. And yet, And you guys will know as well as I do that that questioning dairy in this country is 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 treasonous almost dissing dairy or dissing rugby in this country is is dangerous territory to get into you know but but yet it's so blatant how how just how how stupid the whole the whole system is because there's so many more things to add into that like the fact that you know we use coal that milk then gets dried most of it gets dried and shipped off as a an additive to junk food overseas and a, and a product that replaces breast milk overseas on a massive scale. Um, and we, and we, to do, to get it into that form, to do that, we, we burn massive amounts of coal. Um, you know, the whole thing from the greenhouse, ga- the fossil fuel fertilizer to drive the intensive system, then the fossil fuels that are used to dry the milk out, then the ethical issues around where that stuff ends up. You know, the whole thing is just like this big secret uh, dodgy thing that we're up to that nobody wants to talk about. But oh, you mentioned the, um, the aluminium. So that's, that's to flock out the phosphate. So the two nutrients that cause problems in lakes are phosphate and nitrogen. The two, well, the, the two core kind of, uh, you know, the key to growing any plants are those two core things is what, what um, you know, plants need lots of. But in the, in the case of, of phosphate, you can get it out of the water by, by flocculation, which is what they use the aluminium for. Basically, if you imagine, it's like the aluminium particles attract the phosphate and they clump around it and then it makes it heavy and it falls out. So if you add aluminium to water that's high in phosphate, you'll get uh, 
the phosphate dropping out. And then, so you, you go from one problem of an organic, um, you know, pollutant that's in there called phosphate, then you turn it into a toxic one by adding alum, aluminium to it. So then you have this, it falls out onto the bed of the lake and you've just created a, a non-organic, you know, uh, potentially very dangerous mixture. It makes the lake clearer, um, but it's just a very, very toxic stopgap measure. You know, just, it, it's just, it's just kidding yourself, you know, it's just, it's so fake. It's crazy. Oh, wow. It's, it's, yeah, it, it blew my mind when I was first mm. learning about this. And it was just kind of a case of, you know, I want to make my one arm look longer, so I'll cut off the other one. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Stop the podcast. We would like to take a moment to give a shout out to all of our supporters and let you know how you can be involved in creating Vegan FTA's animal rights content. Vegan FTA is a non-profit organization that relies on good folks like yourself to help us create the advocacy message the animals deserve. By supporting us on Patreon, you can play a vital role in supporting the spread of the animals message and more importantly, bring solutions and strategies for liberation to activists and advocates around the world. Join us for the animals at www.patreon.com forward slash vegan FTA. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, it's just absolutely bizarre how we're... Our clean green dairy industry is actually mm. what is ruining completely our clean greenness. And yeah. um, one thing uh, we were talking about this just the other day was um, how a lot of us, you know, would like to say, you know, like, I don't support factory farms, you know, and then there'll be people say, you know, I only support, you know, the organic and stuff like that. But I kind of mm. feel like out here in New Zealand, despite having the rolling green hills, it all looks very old McDonald, but... Really, it's just outdoor factory farms. Would you sort of agree with that? Yeah, yeah, no, that's it. I mean, that's what people have to understand that, um, you know, if you go back when I was dairy farming, um, you know, 40, more than 40 years ago, um, we didn't put any of those inputs on. And it was much more of that, you know, you imagine. But the stocking rate was less than half of what it is now. I mean, that's, that's the thing you, you just don't see when you're looking at, you know, rolling green hills and things. Well, what you should see is that there's, an, there's, this, there's this monoculture and, and, and people should realise that any monoculture is totally unnatural and will undoubtedly have lots of problems go with it. It's a pretty simple way of understanding a system is that the, the further it is away from a natural system, you know, um, and, and so, yeah, a monoculture of ryegrass is, is a problem. But, yeah, that the cows on paddocks is not, a problem it's the intensity of cows on paddocks and the intensity is there because we artificially boost that stocking rate by the the fertilizer so we import phosphate from and there's a whole lot of ethical issues around that phosphate that's in the news at the moment it's it's stolen property it, it's there's a whole lot of um you know cultural issues that go with that but and we're the only country in the world that's taking that west saharan phosphate um, we are the biggest single importer of palm kernel. So the other way we keep those stocking rates up really high is palm kernel. You know, the byproduct of one of the most damaging industries in the world, the biggest, one of the biggest impacts on biodiversity uh, and on, on, you know, human and, and, and uh, with forest clearance on, on uh, climate change as well. You know, there's everything is bad about palm kernel and, and and yet we are the biggest importer of that two point something million tons of it yearly we bring in to feed cows to keep that stocking rate so high so you know like there's there's no i mean as hard as i try there's no good stories in there there's there's the employment situation where uh it's very hard to get the numbers but the last uh, figures I got from the South Island where the 70% of the farm workers on dairy farms in, in the South Island are people from overseas, you know, so people who are more desperate than New Zealanders and will work, you know, for less pay and in worse conditions than New Zealanders. Um, you know, so at every step, it's, it's just, there's nothing good to be said about it. Yeah, I can completely vouch what you're saying. I actually worked on uh, dairy farms myself for, for many years 
yeah. beginning around the 90s. You know, I remember when Palm Kernel first became kind of a thing and our, our boss were in the South Waikato and he had us feeding out massive amounts of palm kernel. He was like, mm. this is brilliant. It's really cheap feed and it's from mm. a waste product. Yeah, <laughs> waste product. Yeah. yeah, and that was, of course, you know, that was sort of the mm. early 90s before anyone really kind of knew of, of the effects mm. of the whole palm kernel and palm oil thing. But yeah, and the, the other thing with that is um, that the, the part of the reason it's cheap is that um, all those ships that are coming, sorry, all, all of those you know, pine logs, and there's a whole other environmental story with palm, but the whole, we, we, we ship out, you know, huge amounts of unprocessed uh, logs, pine logs to that part of the world. And so those ships come back, would be coming back empty. So it's a backload to them. So they'll, they'll, they'll bring back palm kernel at a, at a reduced rate because it's kind of subsidizing another dodgy, industry that we're involved in you know two of the probably worst things that we do exporting whole pine logs and exporting milk powder you know the two of the most kind of giving away our valuable rivers lakes and and landscapes to two of you know sort of food and fiber kind of I mean, that's probably pushing but you know they're both incredibly unsustainable and they're linked together in in some ways like that where where they're sharing the same transport system to get the logs out and the palm kernel back again yeah i never even considered those those two products actually with the pine mm. or the uh or you know the the palm kernel and yeah it's uh it's crazy stuff going on and like you say when i was farming um it was it was a very desirable thing in the 90s you know that was what all young people were mm. urged to do you know it was a safe it was a secure and wholesome job uh, it's very different these days you know we have young people now that are just like oh i don't want to get up at 4 35 o'clock in the morning yeah. and go milk cows i'll go do something else yeah. so yeah. it's completely true what you're saying about you know the, the farm workers a lot of us are no longer kiwis yeah and i mean you know the other the other end of that the kind of dairy farming where um you know, the, the successful low intensity farms that are once a day. I don't know if you've ever visited any of them, but they're so different. Um, well, for a start, the cows and the people and the animals and the dogs, as well as the cow, everybody's much more relaxed than, than on a, you know, high intensity two or three times a day milking farm. So they go to that once a day, low intensity, low input, uh, you know, you don't have to, milk the cows they I think they mostly milk them at 10 o'clock in the morning or something like that you know um and of course the cows are, are much happier there's way less stress on them because there's way less inputs I mean that was there was another thing that that people I think forget um and I was reminded about with work I was doing with Landcorp um on part of their environmental reference group but but lactating cows are are a different I don't know what some stupid metaphor here, but they're like a factory. They're running at full noise because they're producing that milk, and so they're eating a lot, they're drinking a lot because they've got to pump out these huge amounts of this very, you know, high protein milk. Um, and so their waste uh, production is, is matches that production. So um, you know, for example, when one of the one of the farms could halve the nitrogen loss by halv not halving the herd, but halving the milking herd, the number of animals on the farm didn't change, but there was a, it was a whole lot of bull um, uh, steers replacing cows. So they milked less cows, um, kept the really best of those cows, um, you know, so production barely dropped at all. Um, the stocking, the, the bulls or the steers, their nitrate loss is a fraction of a lactating cow for two things, and one of them's quite a, a, a funny physiological thing that having a penis and kind of wandering along and peeing at the same time and spraying it compared to that big gush that comes from a cow. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, that's, the, that's the kind of thing for people to understand, you know, why it seems natural to have animals on the land, right? And it's very hard people to make a link between, you know, how could that be harmful? but it's the intensity, but also, you know, thinking about when a cow urinates and she just pours all that water into one, that urine into one spot very high in urea, that 
it, it just can't be absorbed by the plants. It just, most of it goes down because it's too much in one spot. If, if she had a sprinkler on her back end, well, and this is why having them inside or on a pad can make a big difference where you can catch that urine and then spread it evenly over the land and then you can get that your nitrogen back to grow plants again. And so again, why, you know, why this kind of magic, you know, grass-fed outside idea sounds good, but actually isn't. I'm, I'm not trying to support the industry, but uh, I because mean, I think it's unnecessary in the first place um, and a stupid waste of, of, of everything. But um, if you are going to do it at that intensity, then getting the cows off the land is actually has a way of reducing some of that harm. But then it's, it's all like all these things, you fix one thing and you cause another problem. So, okay, so you bring them inside and put them in a shed and there's ethical issues and all kinds of things and animal welfare issues. But the from an environmental perspective, then you, you drastically increase the nitrous oxide production when you do that. So if you have urine lying around in tanks and um, you know being spread on the land and volatilizing, you have big increase in nitrous oxide, which I mentioned before is 300 times more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So you, you can kind of ease off on one nitrate to water problem, but then you, you do a nitrogen to atmosphere problem, which is increased when you switch to the other one so again it's like you know sending a spider to catch a fly don't do it in the first place and then you don't have to do any of these things you know because it's a dumb thing to do anyway yeah it, it just so gets true. dumber definitely <laughs> so, um like in a in a previous uh, interview that you did with the lentil intervention podcast and we'll have to link that because it's an absolutely mm. brilliant one that you did recently um you say about you've been to some of these farming conferences and stuff it's absolutely great um, to see that younger farmers are starting to look at the alternatives, whether it's regenerative farming. Of course, here at Vegan FTA, we kind of want it all gone. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, I think it's great to be there and be presenting solutions, you know, as opposed mm. to like for us uh, in the vegan movement, we're very happy to tell you all the problems and say what's what's going wrong with things. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it's very important that we get to these presentations and then also offer those solutions for what they can do else with the land you know where they can move to but um, another thing you touched on in that interview though was about the whole uh, financial entrapment that does come with farming because a lot of these farmers it's it's long hours hard work they get it handed down from their parents or grandparents you know the family farm but then they're millions of dollars in debt you know um, could you just for our viewers you know explain a little bit about well, how, how I view it anyway, yeah. it's financial entrapment, you know, these people that are locked into the system. Yeah, I can vouch for that too, actually. I know people yeah. that are millions of dollars in debt, $4 million yeah. owing to the bank before they're 40. Yeah, I know. And I know people that are way more than that too. And if, you know, and the problem is that, well, part of the problem is this kind of idea that banks have or economists, and it's kind of, I don't like to say that, like lump everybody together, but there is definitely a, an idea out there in the financial world that farms are like factories and they think that, you know, maybe, you know, if I had a factory and I was making, I don't know, biros or something like that. And as long as I had a market for biros and if, as long as I had, you know, if you keep putting more, you know, more plastic and ink and stuff together, then, you know, there's a straight line relationship between production and, and productivity and, and profit. But, Farms are biological systems and they don't work like that. It's not a straight line relationship. There's a there's a natural limits to what can be produced. So you pump them up to a certain level and you increase production and profit. But then it, it plateaus. And then the more stuff you pour on, you don't get anything. In fact, because it's costing you more, your productivity starts to decline. And you can see this at, at every level. Um, so for all farming in New Zealand and dairy in New Zealand numbers, you can see that there, there has been a plateau in productivity and it's starting to decline. It's declined over the last 15 years because more has been added, but less is coming out of the system. And so now we're with these incredibly high debt levels because I, I just was thinking of the example of farming friends who have started to reduce fertilizer inputs and had panic calls from the bank manager who's monitoring their spending because they've got this massive mortgage on the farm um, saying, oi, what are you doing? You can't, because in their mind, 
what goes in is, you know, they're thinking of the biro factory, not the natural system. They don't get it that adding more stuff doesn't, that you can cut off, reduce hugely your inputs and profit actually goes up. I mean, I gave an example, um, if any of the, the viewers wanted to look at my um, book, uh, Polluted Inheritance, the Bridget Williams textbook, Polluted Inheritance. And I give the example of, of um, some farms around Massey that students were working on there where you could ha almost halve the number of cows on that farm and, and have the same amount of profit. You know, so as you go backwards from that, uh, 620 cows I think they had on that farm and you re reduce cows and you go back and the profit goes up and the profit goes up. And then of course, as you go really down in cow numbers, then it starts to reduce again. But where they matched up, where that curve came back and lined up with the 620 cows was 380 cows and you made exactly the same amount of money without all that expenditure and, and stress and worry and all that kind of thing, these systems that are just pushed. So the latest um, Reserve Bank figures showed that for all uh, agriculture in New Zealand, then the productivity has been declining. But 35% of dairy farmers in New Zealand, dairy farms in New Zealand had debt levels of $35 or more per kilogram of milk solids produced. So that meant that they have to, they have to be paid was between $6.20, $6.20 and $6.50 per kilogram to break even. So the milk price has to be $6.20 to $6.50 just to break even. So you, that's not paying, you know, the, like all of that intensive extra work just to pay interest to overseas banks, you know. So a huge amount of this harm that's being done in New Zealand is not making New Zealanders richer. It's not making the farmers richer. It's making bank banks richer, you know, making bank profit levels higher. That's, you know, that's another part of the whole crazy, you know, kind of system that, I mean, it's not just in the farming sector. Look at housing and all that kind of stuff where it's all about capital gains, but that's what's driving a lot of that problem um, in agriculture. So, yeah, you're trapped into the system where you, you owe so much money, you can't even back away from it. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine it would be quite hard to, <laughs> pretty much impossible to make a change as well if, if you're, the banks are so indoctrinated in that, you know, the dairy industry is the way to go. It's progressive, it's growing, it's always going to be here. And if you're $4 million in debt, for example, like um, the person that I know, and then all of a sudden you decide that you do want to change and you go to the bank and say, you know, actually, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go and grow hemp or oats yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Can you imagine the reception they get from the bank? Yeah. That's right. I know. So that's, that's a horrible, horrible trap that they're in. I really feel for those people. I mean, no, I, I, that's the thing I want to make clear too, is that I don't, I don't blame the farmers for this situation. I mean, most of them are just doing, you know, they're working incredibly hard. They're, they're, tr they're working within a system. The system is wrong, but they're stuck with that system. And it's not them that, that need to change. It's, it's the, it's the regulators. It's the industry that needs to change. It's, you know, I, I've I've written a book chapter that I can share with your listeners too, if you if you want, um, called uh, "Deadly Nitrogen Addiction," oh. and 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 we're addicted to it. I mean, in the same way that drug pushers will will give you you know the product, and you once you're hooked on it, they've got you. You know, that's exactly what's happened with the fertilizer industry. They've once you start applying nitrate fertilizer at that at nitrogen fertilizer, then you know the whole soil biology changes. And you, you have to keep putting it on because you will have problems if you try to go cold turkey. You will be really, uh, your soils will be really unwell because they're out of balance because you've been adding this stuff for so long, you know. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a classic kind of, and, and you know, the, the similarities between cigarette smoking and, and fertilizer use and the, the kind of uh, tobacco science that comes from the ag industry, the fertilizer companies, where they deny all the problems. And it's just straight out of the tobacco industry's book for, you know, denial and, and uh, you know, cover-ups. You know, there's a, you know, in climate change as well with big oil and fossil fuel companies, they, they use the same tactics to keep people trapped in those systems, you know. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, um, you know, 
especially from our stance, you know, it's not making an excuse for, you know, the system or how these people are. It's, it's just, I think it's really important for um, on our side, you know, our activists to understand that this is the, the kind of thing that farmers are going through. And so I personally believe what we need to be doing is we need to be offering that helping hand in, in order to get towards mm. a brighter future, you know, like it's sometimes, you know, like there's been recent cases out here where there's been a farmer beating his cow and stuff like that. We need to really, yeah, scream out about stuff like that. But we also, for the majority of the farmers, we need to be working together, work towards a brighter future. And it kind of leads us on to what we want to talk about next is uh, a lot of us, we picked up a hobby during uh, lockdown, you know, or we we upskilled in some form. And, and you, you, well, you, you went ahead and um, started uh, writing up a, a um well, the better futures forum, you know, a brighter projection for New Zealand. And I'd love to talk about that a bit more because, yeah, um, yeah how, how did you end up coming with your, coming up with the brighter futures forum, BFFS, isn't better it? Better futures, my little Oh, better futures, <laughs> yeah. BFF, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but bright is great, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, it just comes from that frustration with seeing how we could. That's always what makes it really hard, I think, being a Kiwi and, and, uh, you know, knowing what we're capable of and what we could be doing here, and yet we just seem to, to do with the worst, take the worst from the overseas and and use it. But we, yeah, I was just trying to envisage. Well, I mean, I guess, and and it was it wasn't just me; it was some some friends as well. But we we're kind of the shock of how much we changed in such a short time. When it came to that lockdown you know, nothing was impossible, right? We could just stop what we were doing and everything could change. And and yet, you know, on the scheme of things, you know, COVID is pretty small in comparison with the impacts of climate change and the impacts of even what we're doing with agriculture in, in the world. But because it was immediate and you can kind of measure it, uh, then, you know, we reacted. And so it was kind of a, a, a hopefulness that came out of that, that um, that if we could just um, visualize for people the better world that we could have, uh, uh, you know, like it's it's so easy for, to portray the changes that we need to make as a negative thing. And yet, if you go to places in the world where, um, where people do live uh, in harmony with, with nature and the environment, um, then they are much, much nicer places to live. And that, you know, the symptoms of how stuffed up our system is, whether it's, you know, with social, with drug use, with mental health, with, you know, ecosystem health, all those kind of things, there is nothing good about what we have at the moment. You know, um, we're going in the t <clears throat> completely the wrong direction. So it was kind of trying to, to <clears throat> come up with a picture for how the world could be a lot better if we used that opportunity of of COVID to make the changes that we need to make. Fantastic. Yeah. It's one of the great things that we love doing about this series that a lot of the, you know, the, we have to talk about a lot of serious stuff, a lot of nasty negative mm. stuff that we all wish wasn't happening, but it's great that there are just so many people out there like yourself that are just working and fighting so hard to, to make change and, and to make things better and, and yeah, to have a better future. And one excellent focus of the project that we really like um, is you're working with the, um, the Maori community and um, just integrating that indigenous knowledge and understanding. And it's, it's so great that you're doing that. Um, and I could imagine it would be really valuable as well. Could you explain a little bit about this aspect and, and bringing that all together? Yeah, and I was going to say, um, if you could link, or I'll send you the link to that, you know, that I just put together that little story of how the, vision, the world, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the vision for one year's time, you know, it was obviously tongue in cheek, but I mean, it gives you an idea. But yeah, I mean, a, a part of that coming together for the Better Futures Forum was how a bunch of, um, we, 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 we talk, call ourselves systems thinkers you know i think that's what we had in common is that we we understand and we think in systems how everything is in, interconnected and and from a western science point of view we call that systems thinking um goes back to to the meadows and herman daly and a few others that you know that sort of thought about these things in the past and came up with that term but but I, i'm i'm you know totally aware that that indigenous knowledge is exactly the same thing 
you know, and we just put a fancy word on it, but it's actually exactly the same as indigenous knowledge and, and Maori, you know, understanding and worldview just fits in so perfectly with that system's view where we are part of a completely interconnected system. You can't isolate these issues and try and treat them on their own. We are in the system, the system is us and you know, whether it's lakes or rivers and, and you know, identity that, that um, Māori have with places and, and um, with lineage and whakapapa, we, we are all part of that. And so it was, it's not a clash. Like there's, there's, a, there's this clash portrayed between Western science and indigenous knowledge. And it just, it, it exists for sure if you live in a reductionist scientist view where you're a chemist or a, or, you know, um, you know, you are a physicist or something, and you're working in this really narrow space where you've you've reduced down to you know a, a nanoparticle of, of some sort and or some chemical. But um, and you, at this higher level where ecologists work, um, you know, it's it's all about understanding that interconnectedness. And so I think that was, you know, one of the major things about the Better Futures Forum was that we. We have to make sure that when we think about what we have to do, how interlinked all of these things are, you know. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. And uh, for many of our viewers, they may well be overseas. And I know um, we're talking a lot about New Zealand here, and especially in this case, you know, the, the Maori, which are the mm. indigenous. Um, I really hope people can see this and take some of the knowledge and apply it to their own areas, you know, because it's so important, like a lot of these facts have been yeah, based through New Zealand throughout this episode, but you've got to look on, look at what's going on in your own country and how you can be working together in those um, in those systems, to, to use our word for it, you know. Yeah. And um, do you hope that a initiative like this might be something that will get um, overseas in due time, or at least there'll be um, global variations of it? Well, I, th I think there already are. I mean, there's people around the world that are working in a similar space, and um, <clears throat> you know, there is there is a a proportion of the world of the people of the world, and I don't know what that number might be who understand the problems or want to understand. Um, actually, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and and somebody talking about I, about being it's a, a it's like being awake to these issues, and I don't mean woke, but I mean and at the time that it takes from the time you realize, and I'm sure you guys have been on a similar kind of pathway where you start to, you, you get a glimmer of something happening. And then it's like, that's when your eyes are first starting to open up. And then it takes time. You, you sort of go down all these, you know, rabbit holes and things that take you in the wrong direction, but eventually you start to see how it all connects up. And then you start, and, and I feel like I've been awake for 24 hours, you know, um, because because I, if I look back to what I was saying five years ago, even I was kind of not seeing the whole picture and I'm sure I don't see the whole picture now, but the further along you get it and you realize, you know, so from a global perspective, when it comes to animal agriculture, it is the biggest, you know, environmental issue that we face, whether it's greenhouse gas emissions or, you know, pollution all the way through and that huge role that animals and nitrogen fertilizer pay play in the harm but also that they are what got our population to this extreme level it is our global population so i mean if you if you look at those the sums that have been done on just taking away nitrogen fertilizer you would feed less way less than half the population of the world at the moment i mean that's under our current system where we waste half the food and a huge amount of the food goes to feed animals instead of us and all that kind of thing. So the reality of, of carbon neutral, which is what we have to do if we want to survive, is that we're going to have to eat. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I totally understand and, 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 uh, agree with all of the things reasons that people have for being vegans and not wanting to have animals involved in food and all that kind of thing but even if you put all of that aside from a purely practical energy transfer which is what it's about it's about the energy that we need to stay alive plus some some other you know obviously some macronutrients and other things in there um if you're going to have you're going to feed anywhere like the population that we have or what we propose to have 
you just can't have animals in it. It just does not compute. The amount of energy coming in and the amount of energy required by that many people just to keep their systems running, it, you just can't have them. So you, people can make out like it's a choice, <laughs> you know, but, but, it, but it isn't a choice. And, um, you know, the sooner that we, um, you know, when we're, of course, like everything else, we're not even beginning to reduce that. Um, there's a lot more awareness around around the impacts of agri animal agriculture, but there's no reduction in the amount of animal food that's going into diets globally. So, you know, we have to, it's, it's, it's a reality of a, it's, it's a them or us situation, you know? And so it's, that's going to have to be a big change that's going to happen. Yeah, for sure. I think it's, it's really inevitable, isn't it? But mm. in the meantime, while we're waiting for everybody else to wake up, what, what, can, <laughs> what can people like us do? Um, and the average, you know, the viewers watching, the average person around the world that, you know, doesn't, doesn't currently own a farm or anything like that, thank goodness. But what can we do every day to, to help you and your goal to, to make the world a better place? Oh, well, I mean, clearly the simplest, easiest thing that people can do is, and but the, I mean, I know your your audience is probably already doing this, but I, you know, without a doubt, getting animals out of our diet is is a massive step that we have to make, and it's something that we can do as individuals that will have way more impact than anything else we do in our lives. Then, you know, from from that point onwards, it's about uh, consumption. It's about reducing consumption. So you know, everything, mainly energy that we consume, it's about reducing the amount of energy we consume, which is tied up in, you know, vehicles and junk that we buy and all that kind of thing. It's about reducing our, our impact on the planet by reducing our, our consumption and learning to, to live with natural products and living with less and, and enjoying, you know, living with less and questioning all of those ideas like that you know you have to go on holidays overseas and that it's not you're not cool if you're not doing all that stuff i mean i you know right through to we got to stop idolizing um you know people who make lots of money is this kind of winner loser thing is so bizarre you know oh he's a loser or he's a he you know like he's a leader he's fantastic because he's made a whole lot or she's made a whole lot of money that is not a, a prerequisite for anything of value is making lots of money it's because you can guarantee that there's just been a whole lot of dumb harm done in making all that money and so you know when we that's part of the basic shift that we have to have where we i mean it, it, it did come out of the covid lockdown thing that there was some realization that those people that we pay the least in society are the ones that are most crucial to us and all of the unpaid work is actually the most crucial part of of our of our existence and yet you know in our system and in our values where we we call people winners and losers then it's completely back to front totally back to front the people with the money at the top that we seem to think are magic and put on all these panels and boards and you know idolize are actually the problem and we and and the people at the other end of the scale who have paid the least or paid not at all are the really important people in life and um yeah that's that's you know a crucial change that we have to make Thank you for listening to this interview. We hope you have found it informative and entertaining. To learn more about Mike's work, check out Better Futures Forum at bff.org.nz. Once again, be sure to follow us on social media platforms for future episodes. And if you're enjoying the content, then please leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. This has been Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals.